All right, good morning, everybody. I'm really glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Over the last few weeks, we've been slowly examining the development of Pastor Peter's argument in chapter 3. Last week, Peter particularly engaged the scoffers and their insistence that, quote, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. He declared that in order to maintain that logic, the scoffers intentionally overlook important truths in God's word. And so like he has done in previous sections of the letter, Peter reached back into the Old Testament to prove his point. Last week, he went back to creation to say that the natural order of things that the scoffers insist never changes once did not even exist. But then God spoke and the status quo was dramatically interrupted by the creating power of his word. And then Peter went on to talk about the flood during Noah's day to show that in a similar way, by his word and with water, God interrupted the status quo by bringing unusual judgment and unusual salvation. Let's not forget that part. We didn't talk about that a ton last week, but he also brought unusual salvation. Peter has been laboring to show us that the omnipotent God has a track record of doing things like this things that are out of the ordinary, things that are against the status quo in order to bring judgment against sinners and to bring salvation to his people. And that gives us confidence that he will do it again, that he will do it again at the return of Christ. He will bring salvation to his people and judgment by fire, Peter said, judgment by fire to his enemies. I want to remind you of what Michael Green said last week. The main point of this verse should not be obscured by the problems over the details. It is that God who created the beginning of all things has the power to end them. You may remember my paraphrase of that. I brought you into this world. I will take you out of this world. He has the power to create and to destroy. It's in his hands. Last week for application, we talked about how we must not be selective in our remembering. In our remembering of the truths of God's word, we can't be selective. Finding loopholes in the Bible is not the goal of faithful Christian living. In fact, this pattern that we see on display in the scoffers needs to be avoided. Where they are driven by a lustful desire, some, some lust of the flesh, some desire of the flesh, they're driven by it and they build some supporting argument in order to justify the pursuit of that desire. And in order to maintain that logic, they ignore parts of scripture. We are in danger of doing that very same thing to be driven by the lust of the flesh, to build some argument to justify our pursuit of sin and ignore a whole lot of scripture in order to get down that road. And so we ask the Lord to show us where we are doing that and to grant us repentance to turn away from it. Secondly, we talked about how God has established a track record of interrupting the status quo so that we can be confident that he will keep his promise of the return of Christ. We can be confident that Christ will return and we long for that day, right? We, we long for that day when the Lord Jesus returns to vindicate his people, to ultimately, eternally, finally save his people and to judge his enemies. We long for that day. Do you long for that day? Are you ready for that day? That's going to be one of the questions that will loom over this week and next. And then I tried to make a secondary, although pastoral, application to basically ask you, are you ready for him to interrupt your status quo? Or are you, like the scoffers, kind of locked into thinking that everything is going to go on today just like it went on yesterday. 
are we, like the scoffers, kind of locked in to the status quo to think that, oh, everything will just continue on as it always has. This Sunday, no different than last Sunday, no different than the Sunday before. Tomorrow will be just the same. Are you ready for him to interrupt your status quo, to break in, to bring discipline and judgment to you for your sin? Do, do you think he won't do that? Do you think he won't interrupt your status quo to correct you? To bring you back to himself in discipline? Do you think that he won't break in to bring about conversion? To take someone who's walking the broad road to destruction and bring them over to the narrow road? To deliver someone from the domain of darkness and transfer them to the kingdom of his beloved son? Do you not think that he's able to do what he did for the Apostle Paul on his way to see to the death of Christians and make him a missionary? Do you think that he won't do that the way he did it in my life? To take a sinner, an enemy of his, and not just make him his friend, but make him his child by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Are you ready for him to break in and bring conversion? Are you ready for him to break into the status quo and send some of you out to the nations? Or to call you into ministry to serve local churches by preaching the word of God, by leading the people of God? Do, do you think that, that he is more concerned about your dream for your future than he is for his mission of global redemption? Do you think that he couldn't redirect your dreams and desires and passions to someplace else? I'm thankful that he's done that. I'm thankful that he's done that here in the life of some families. And I'm trusting that he's doing that in more lives, even now. Do you think that he won't break in to send you out? And do you think that he won't break in to bring about revival? Do you think that the Lord just operates in normal ways all the time? I'm thankful for normal days. Like I told you that last week. I'm thankful for normal, ordinary days. I'm thankful for the ordinary means of grace that God has designed to grow us in Christ-likeness. But I'm also thankful that he is not bound to those ordinary means. That he will do whatever he wants. Do you remember in Sunday school just this morning when Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who's been dead for four days, and he says, roll away the stone. And everybody's like, no, we don't want to do that. He stinks. They had no clue that he was about to bring that dead man out. They thought it was all over. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Can he, who made the blind man see, not keep this from happening? Nobody had, everybody had a box that Jesus could change it then, before Lazarus died. Nobody in the room seemed to have a box that he's not limited even by death. That he has power even to bring the dead back to life after four days. Do you think he will not break in? And should we not have hearts that are crying, come Lord Jesus? Not just on that last day, but come Lord Jesus today. Come Lord Jesus, break in, interrupt, shake things up, move us, change us, grow us, whatever it takes. Come Lord Jesus, that should be the cry of our hearts every day, right? Well, this week we're going to see the argument continue to develop. Only here, Pastor Peter is going to bring his audience back into the focus. Once again, reminding them of important things that they already know. Today's text is going to be familiar to you. You've heard this before, and you need to be reminded. I need to be reminded of this. So let's lean in to this familiar text and make sure that we have a proper understanding of it. Because I'm convinced that sometimes just because we're familiar with something doesn't mean we really understand it. Sometimes we have a, a real deep misunderstanding of some things that are familiar to us, and that can be really dangerous. And so let's lean in and look closely to make sure we understand this properly. 
So I'm going to read from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 9. Although today, we're just going to look closely at 8 and 9, and the next week, you'll cover verse 10. Let's read together. This is God's word. It says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the word spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, we recognize you as the one true and living God. We recognize you as the creator and sustainer of everything that exists, including every one of us in this room. You are sovereign over all creation. You hold the whole world in your hands, and you are worthy of praise. So we praise you, and you are worthy of our trust so we believe you. You are worthy of our obedience, and so we submit to you. And as we study your word today, we ask that you would remind us that you are not like us. You are not limited by time as we are. A long time is short to you, and a short time is long to you. Help us to trust. Help us to trust you as you work out your plan of redemption. And remind us also that you are merciful. And that you desire us to repent. So Lord, bring us to repentance today. Have your way in this place. Have your way in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, look closely at verse 8, the first part of verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That word but signals a shift. Peter has been breaking down the mocking of the mockers by the testimony of the prophets and the apostles, right? One might say that they, the scoffers and the mockers, are in his sights, especially in verses 5 to 7 that we covered last week. But here, he directs his attention to his actual audience, right? And who is his audience? You, right? The beloved, he says in this text. He's writing to the church. He's writing to folks like you and me who have repented of our sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have professed faith in Jesus as Lord. Look at it at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 1. He identifies his audience. He says, To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, 
so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That's who he's drawing back into focus. No longer talking about the scoffers and the mockers, but talking about us, beloved, brothers. It's the same audience of 1 Peter. In fact, if you want to flip over to 1 Peter chapter 1, that first letter, he identifies his audience as believers, as the chosen exiles who were scattered all over the place. He says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. He goes on and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter is writing to us. And he's putting us back in the focus. Recognizing to whom Peter is writing is going to be helpful as we deal with the phrase later on in the text today. But signifies a shift in the focus uh, of, of the audience but also signals a contrast. Look at it in the text. They, the scoffers that we talked about last week, deliberately overlook, deliberately forget certain things that God has revealed in his word. They maintain their logic that undergirds their pursuit of fleshly lust by failing to recall, by failing to remember basic biblical truths. But Peter shifts and contrasts, and he says, you, beloved, must not let this escape your notice. That phrase, let this escape your notice, is the very same phrase he used last week for the scoffers. That's what the scoffers do. They let it escape their notice. They deliberately forget. That's what they do to undergird the lusts of their flesh, but he calls us to not do that. He says, you cannot forget, you cannot ignore, you cannot neglect what God has said in his word. And this is the same idea that Peter has been preaching all along. His mission, as he declares it in 2 Peter, is to remind the faithful of certain biblical truths. He said it even at the beginning of chapter 1 that we read a minute ago. He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Even there in chapter 3, he's like, you got to remember and here at the end of chapter 3, the text that we're looking at says, you must not forget. Don't deliberately overlook these things like the scoffers do. You operate differently. He said this even at the beginning of the letter. Turn to chapter 1 and look at verse 12. As he articulates his mission in this letter, Peter says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Three times right there, as he says, this is my mission. Three times he says, I'm going to remind you of these things. You already know them, but I'm going to remind you. And it's right for me to do that as long as I'm alive. And my hope is that even when I'm dead, you'll be able to remember these things. The call for the faithful is to remember. 
to remember and submit to God's word, the way of the scoffer is to deliberately neglect, deliberately forget. But you, but you don't operate like them. You remember and you submit. They conveniently forget. They conveniently ignore. We must remember. Much of the Christian life, much of the walk of discipleship is a call to remember. Not to discover new things, not to unveil hidden things, but to be constantly reminded of the basic things. The basic things of who God is, what he has done for us in Christ, and what he has said in his word. That's the walk of discipleship, being reminded of basic biblical truths. Now before we move on into the next part of of verse 8, let's just delight in that word beloved for a minute. We did this the other day, the first time he said it. Let's delight in the fact that that's who we are in Christ. In Christ, we are beloved. Beloved of God. Does that amaze you? Does that that amaze you that God loves you? It really should. Right? If we understand rightly the holiness of God, and if we understand rightly the sinfulness of man, my sinfulness and your sinfulness, if we understand those two things rightly, it should absolutely amaze us that the holy God loves us sinful men. Not just that he loves us, but the way he loves us. How does he demonstrate his love for us? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did all that was necessary in the sacrifice of his own son in order to reconcile us to himself. He didn't ask us to do the work. He didn't ask us to work our way up to him. He did what was necessary for us to be reconciled to him through the sacrifice of his own son. This is amazing that he loves us, that, we, that our identity in Christ is beloved, beloved of God. But Peter also teaches us that we are not just loved by God in Christ, but we are loved by spiritual leaders in the church. Peter is not just talking about these people and their vertical relationship with God, that he loves them. He's also talking about his relationship with them and their relationship with him. He loves them. Peter loves these people, and that's why he wants to remind them. That's why he wants to guard them. That's why he wants them to be on the narrow road that leads to life. It's because he loves them. So in the church, know that you are loved by spiritual leaders. In the church, know that you are loved by us as your pastors. We want you to remember certain basic biblical truths. We want you to walk faithfully with Jesus. We want you to be on the narrow road that leads to life, leads to glory. Let's just delight in that word, beloved, for a minute. And now let's consider what does Peter want us to remember? All all of this effort to remind, what does he want them to remember? He says, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. This is Peter's answer to the scoffers when they say, Where's the promise of his coming? Where is it? Where's the promise of this coming? It hasn't happened yet. In other words, the scoffers raise an objection in light of the delay of Christ's return. To put words into their mouths, didn't he say he would be back soon? Peter? Didn't Jesus say he would be back soon? It's been 20 whole years and he hasn't come back yet. Where's the promise? Peter was already catching that. The early church was catching that 20, 30, 40 years after Jesus left. Didn't he say he was coming back soon? And he hasn't returned yet. 
do you not think that the scoffers have gained a little steam in the last 2,000 years? Do, do you not hear people even around you today say, didn't he say he was coming back soon? And here we are 2,000 years later, and he hasn't come back. Friends, that's a real tension. That's a real tension that Peter is relieving by reminding us that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. We need to remember that the Lord is not like us. He is not like us. John MacArthur said, finite people must not confine the infinite God to their time schedule. Right, that's craziness that we finite people would confine the infinite God to our time schedule. He is infinite. We are finite. And we know something about this. We know and we see an illustration of this on a small scale in the difference between the perspective of a parent and a child. Right? How often have you as a parent and I as a parent heard my kids say, Dad, when are we going to eat dinner? And I say, soon. And I understand soon may be a couple of hours. They think soon is like one minute, two minutes. Soon is like, oh, you're, you're, you're taking us to get it now or you're cooking it even now. How many times have we heard our kids say, Dad, when are we going to get there? Are we almost there? Soon. To me, soon could be five or six hours in the car. That doesn't cut it for my kids. They have a whole different perspective on time. Dad, when will I be big enough to do this on my own? Soon. Not now, but soon. My kids hear that and think tomorrow. And I think, no, 15 years from now is what we're talking about. Or let's use another illustration. Talk to a kid about how long it will be till Christmas rolls back around. And what's their perspective on that? That's forever. It is forever until Christmas rolls back around. Talk to an adult about when's Christmas coming. It's like that, right? It's like just around the corner. I, th I think even my perspective is different than a senior adult's perspective on how quickly those things kind of roll back around, right? If we see this difference of perspective, even between us here, how much greater must that difference of perspective be between us and the infinite God who is not bound by time? We might say to him, Dad, when's he coming back? And he says, soon. And I'm like, tomorrow, right? Maybe. Maybe a thousand years from now. Time is different for him. Oh, Dad, when are you going to come back and set everything right? Soon, he says. Oh, Dad, when are we going to see your face and dwell with you forever and ever? Soon, he says. And I need to receive that. I need to receive that like a child from his parent. Tom Schreiner says, what seems agonizingly long to us is a whisker of time to him. Whisker is right. I thought it was whisper. It's a whisker, a whisker of time. Just a tiny little whisker of time. Might seem like forever to us. We need to remember that God is not like us. And I need to warn you not to take Peter's words here as a formula that somehow unlocks the timing of Christ's return. 
or somehow relieve some scientific tension about creation. He doesn't say a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. He says a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. It's a general statement. So we don't get out our calculators at this point and be like, okay, so, so six days of creation uh, times a thousand, a thousand years per day, that's 6,000 years, so, so that's the way it, it, it happened. Or some prediction about the return of Christ in so many days, and we calculate it out to so many thousands of years. No, 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 that's not, that's not Peter's point at all. He's making a general declaration about the way we view time versus the way God views time. He's not like us. And we are foolish to read our limited perspective onto him. Rather, we'd be wise to trust him like a little kid in the back seat. Right? Like I almost feel like I hear God saying to me, we're going to be there soon. Look out the window and stop pestering your sister. We'll get, we'll get there soon. And Peter goes on reminding us. Look at verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now this first part seems to be Peter's refutation of the scoffer's assertion that the Lord is slow or late in fulfilling his promise, namely the promise of Christ's return, which includes final salvation for his people and final judgment for his enemies. The scoffers seem to say, he's slow about this, he's late about this. And Peter says, no, 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 he's not slow as some, that is the scoffers, count slowness. Who do they think they are to pronounce such a judgment on God's timing? He's slow, he's late. He's not slow, he's patient. That's what Peter says. He's not slow, he's not late, he's patient. And that is one of the fundamental things we learn about God as we read the Bible. He's patient. And aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful for the patience of God? It's on display all throughout the scriptures. And friends, it's on display all throughout our lives. If you're not ready to say amen to the patience of God and gladness over the patience of God, you're setting yourself up for a world of hurt. We should be glad that he is patient. Let's see, let that sink in a minute as we reflect on some other scriptures. Look at Exodus chapter 34. This is God revealing himself to Moses and to his people. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. The Lord, the Lord, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, patient. Look at Psalm 86. The psalmists often repeat this phrase. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you know the story of Jonah, right? That, that prophet who was called to go preach about pending doom and destruction to Nineveh, and he refused and tried to run the other way to Tarshish, and a great storm was appointed, and they threw him overboard, and a great fish swallowed him up. You remember all this? 
And he finally ended up in Nineveh and he went around that city and he preached 40 days and Nineveh would be overthrown. And what happened? The people of Nineveh repented. They repented of their sins. They turned back to the Lord and he forgave them. And Jonah delights in the salvation of these pagan people and rejoices that they are part of the family of God. No. No. Jonah goes up on a hill and he says, I knew this is what was going to happen. I knew this is who you are, patient and kind and compassionate on people that don't deserve it. Oh, man. Read it, Jonah chapter 4. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, that is, their repentance, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. God is patient. I don't want to be like Jonah in my reflecting on his patience. I knew you would do this. I knew you were like this. Rather, I want to be grateful and thankful for his patience toward me. He is patient. And there is a purpose in his delay. It's what Peter is teaching. Number one, he's patient. Number two, there's a purpose in the delay. There's a reason why it hasn't happened yet. And that reason is that he desires repentance. Look at it in the text. Does, does Peter not say that directly? The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What's the purpose of his patience? Repentance. Repentance. And this is also a common theme in God's word. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. That's it, right? He's taking this character of God, Joel is, and he's connecting the dots. He says, this is who he is. He's compassionate and kind and slow to anger. He's patient. So what should you do? Repent. Repent, turn back to him. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He says this, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Paul anticipates an idea where people say, God is patient, and so I'll sin and sin and sin and sin. And Paul says, that's not the right response to his patience. God is patient. He's compassionate. He's loving kind. He's slow to anger. So repent. Repent because although he is patient, his patience doesn't last forever. But he is patient toward you now, giving you time to repent. So we must repent. So I think the simple lesson here is repent while there's time. Repent while there's this delay in the final judgment. Repent. Trust in Jesus Christ and receive salvation. That's one application. The other application is preach repentance. Preach repentance while there's time. You repent. And you preach repentance to all the nations. And to every neighbor. Jim Shattuck says, Instead of casting doubt on his promise, God's seeming delay actually highlights his heart. His wanting isn't due to his impotence, but to his mercy. Ironically, what the false teachers were using as an argument against God's promise 
was the very thing that should have led them to repentance. The, the, thing, the thing that they are scoffing and mocking at is their hope. If he were to return today in judgment, they would be consumed and destroyed. And Peter is saying, he's patient so that you'll have time to repent. So repent and let's preach repentance. Now there's a theological tension that is created in this verse and I want us to be careful with it. There are two potential dangers when we read these words. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. There are two potential dangers here. First, we could understand from this text that the omnipotent God is not able to accomplish that which he desires. In fact, in misunderstanding the text this way, we actually make ourselves the supreme power which the Lord cannot overcome. There's a danger there. There's a subtle danger to understanding it that way. The second danger is that we could misunderstand this passage to teach universal salvation by implication. He is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so everyone will be saved in the end. If the omnipotent God desires all to come to repentance, then one way or another, all will come to repentance. And there's a danger in that. Because we don't see that fleshing out in life, nor in the scriptures. So to avoid these two dangers, these two misunderstandings, we need only to look closely at the context and remember to whom Peter is saying these words. I tried to draw your attention to this earlier by pointing out the but in verse 8, right? Contrasting what he's saying now to the believers with what he was saying earlier to the scoffers. The but in verse 8 is important. The fact that he once again calls his audience out as beloved in, in verse 9, verse 8 is significant. Peter seems to be layering on the specificity of his audience in this text, and he keeps on doing that. When he says, as some count slowness, he seems to be referencing the outsiders. But finally here, notice that he says, the Lord is patient toward you. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. So to say it simply, the any and all in this verse seem to have a context within the church. So while this text certainly should motivate our evangelism, right, this text certainly should motivate our evangelism. We should be spending our time before his return, inviting the whole world to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Like this should motivate us with urgency to be out there saying, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ because judgment is coming and there's only one escape. While this text urges and motivates us to evangelism, this text also brings us a great deal of confidence and assurance as his people. It reminds us that he will keep his promise to us. It reminds us that he is patient toward us. It reminds us that he desires for us to repent and not perish. I think John chapter 6 is a great parallel to what Peter is saying here. John chapter 6, Jesus said to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, 
not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So there's an encouragement here for us as his people, brothers and sisters. God desires to keep you to the end, and he will. And one of the ways he does that is through repentance. So let us, you, be quick to repent from our sin, to turn from our sin and turn toward him in faith and obedience, or as Paul would say, faithful obedience, the obedience of faith. That should be confidence boosting in us, not just affect the way we deal with outsiders, but cause us to be busy in repentance as well. So three applications from this short text. Number one, God is not like us. You gotta remember that. He's not like us. He's high above. He's infinite. He's glorious. He's full of mercy. He's full of love, compassion, slow to anger. He is all of those things and that should cause us to praise him. Right, that should cause us to praise him. When we reflect on who God is, it should cause us to praise him. Who's like him? No one is like him. We should sing to him. We should worship him. We should obey him. He's not like us. Don't forget that. Stop treating him like he is. Like that whole, where's the promise of his coming? I thought it was soon. That's us treating him like he's us. Not. He's different from us. That should cause us to worship him. Number two, repent. Repent is the call of this text. Repent, turn from your sin and turn toward the Lord in faithful obedience. Turn from your sin, turn toward the Lord in faithful obedience. And listen, repentance is not just a one-time experience at conversion. It's the ongoing lifestyle of the disciple of Christ. Right? Repentance is daily need as we follow after Jesus. Certainly, it's a once, once experience, a beginning time experience at conversion. We would call conversion repentance, right? But it doesn't stop there. We keep on repenting as we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. So turn from your sin and turn toward the Lord in faithful obedience. Turn also from the false teachers and their enticements toward worldliness and turn toward the truth of God's word. One of the things Pastor Peter is saying here is don't forget like they do. Don't ignore like they do. Don't overlook what he has said like they do. Rather, remember, remember, remember. And we do that by regular Bible reading, by participation in small group Bible study, by worship services and preaching and memorization and meditation, take in all of God's word so that we turn from the false teachers, from their enticements to worldliness, from the lies that they share toward the truth of God's word. Some of you need to do that for the first time in conversion. Some of you are walking the broad road to destruction and today's the day where he invades that status quo and he brings you over. He brings you out of darkness into light. You need to repent. Repent of the way you've been walking and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you need to do that for the first time and some of you need to do that for the hundredth time today. You need to keep on repenting. You've been treating repentance like it's something you did in the past and you've developed patterns of sin that need to be turned from. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Don't wait. That seems to be part of what's going on here too, especially as we move into verse 10. Like as much as Peter talks about God's patience in verses 8 and 9, in verse 10 he says, oh, but the day is coming. Like don't forget that the day is coming. Don't wait. You know when that day is coming? Do you? Anybody want to be so bold and say, I know. The Lord Jesus himself said, I don't even know. That day is coming and none of us know when, so don't wait. Don't wait to repent. Don't wait to trust in Jesus Christ. Remember, he's not like us and worship him to repent. And third, preach. You will see in the text next week that his patience does not last forever. The day of the Lord is coming. And the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. And the only hope for lost men and women, lost boys and girls, is the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they will never trust in one they've never heard about. Lost people will not put their faith in Jesus if they've never heard about Jesus. And they will never hear about Jesus unless people like you and me go and tell them. Some of us need to go to the ends of the earth where no one is preaching. Who's next to do that? Who's next to answer that call? I'm not just talking about young people getting out of school. I'm not just talking about young people who have uh, adventure on their mind. I'm talking about all of us. Who's next to say, I'm, I'm, I'm going. I'm going to preach where Jesus is not being preached right now. And some of you need to go across the street, speak across a table, maybe on the other side of your office, and invite your friends, your neighbors, your family members to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Preach. One famous preacher said, the good news of the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. If it gets there in time, before they die, before the Lord returns. And it is our responsibility, our joyful responsibility to take it, to take it to the neighbor's and to take it to the nations. And so this text should urge us, stimulate us to preach with urgency. It's patient. But that patience will not last forever. There's only one hope for deliverance. Let's stand together and pray. <clears throat> well, Father, we do recognize that you're not like us. And we do worship you, for you are worthy. And we all need repentance. So we pray that you would grant it. That you would give us repentance to turn away from our sin and turn toward you. Some for the first time in conversion, the beginning of their spiritual life. Give them, Lord, repentance and give them faith to trust in Jesus Christ. And some of us, we need repentance for the hundredth time. Today, as we walk in discipleship fighting against our sin, fighting for holiness. I pray that you use this text today to give us an urgency in our repentance as well, that we would not wait. Father, we pray that you'll give us urgency in our preaching. We are so thankful for your patience, for your long-suffering. 
but we know there's purpose in it. And your purpose is to bring men and women and boys and girls to repentance. And you bring them to repentance through the proclamation of your gospel. And you've given us that responsibility and empowered us to do that work. Help us to take that seriously today. Father, I pray that you'll call out people to go to the nations in this moment. That you would spark in them a desire to commit their lives to taking the gospel where it is not preached, has not been preached. And I pray that you'll call people out to talk to their neighbors, their coworkers and their friends, their family members, to proclaim with boldness and confidence the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name.